Well, good evening. I'm thankful you're here, and, and uh, tonight we are going to um, uh, continue in worship because just like Paul got to lead us in uh, songs of worship, study is worship. And, and the Bible tells us in Mark chapter 12 that we're to learn to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and with all our strength. And I'm grateful that you joined us tonight, and, and I pray that you stick with us over the next four weeks because we're going we're gonna to push one another. We're going to push us intellectually. I don't know if there's ever been a moment when uh, somebody um, engaged you in the reason for your faith. I, I, I'll never forget, as a youth minister, on my way to a, a youth minister's conference, and I was in, sitting in the airport, and I had my Bible out, and there was a, a, um, a guy noticed, noticed it sitting across. You know, in the airport, you're just kind of sitting in those, like, close seats. And, and he noticed I had my Bible. And he, he, uh, he was a, um, kind of this prestigious attorney in Oklahoma City. And uh, he, he said, uh, do you really believe that? Do you really believe what you're reading? And, and he, he goes, that is so... Um, intellectually silly that you would believe the Bible. I mean, he was dead serious. And I began to, we, we began to have this conversation about faith. And, and it was, you know, thankfully it was a, a moment that I felt like I was somewhat prepared for. Because though he did not agree with me, and though he said, I just don't, don't believe what you're saying, I could honestly give him a reason for the hope that I have. And, and it's our prayer as a church and as a church body that we grow a group of people with a biblical worldview. My daughter Emily uh, is taking a, she's away at college and, and, and she's at J-term. OBU has a J-term, which is a term during January. And, and her class that she's taking right now is called Worldview. And, and it's essentially this, this challenge in this class that is, is encouraging her to consider what is your worldview? How do you view the world? Do you view the world through just uh, a humanistic worldview of just that it's all physical, it's all just, just, just um, uh, what you can see, touch, smell, hear, taste, those kinds of things? Or do you understand the world through the lens of Scripture? Well, over the next several weeks, we are going to seek to instill and in process what it looks like to have a biblical worldview, that we see the world and see your life through the view of God's Word. And that's who we are as Christians. We are believers. We are followers of Christ who, who understand that God has moved and, and who are striving to see the world through the eyes of Scripture. And God has given us and blessed us through his word. And, and so I want to tell you where we're going to go today, uh, this, where we're going over the next four weeks. Tonight is more of an introduction on apologetics. And I'm going to, I'm going to define that here in a minute. Uh, but, but tonight is more of the introduction and the importance of apologetics. Um, and, and you'll see uh, Reason for God, Introduction to Apologetics. Now, um, 
Uh, that's where we're going to go tonight. Next week is we're going to process this idea and this question, is there God? And why do we believe this? Why do we believe there is a supreme being? Then we're going to dive into the problem of evil, the third week. Why, do, why, why does evil exist in the world? Why, why do bad things happen to good people? And this is a very important question to ask because so often we engage people that, that you know, and there are bad things that happen in the world every day. Like every time we turn on the news, there's another shooting or there's a, a, a natural disaster. And it's interesting uh, that with the increase of the globalization of the world, we have CNN everywhere and, and we have uh, the internet and Twitter. And so we recognize and we, we now know things that are happening all over the world where prior to that, they would happen and no one would know about it. But we, we, are, we are aware of all kinds of tragedies. But, and, and it's created this question of, well, how could a good, loving God not stop those things? And so that third week, we're going to process the problem of evil. And then the last week, week four, though every week will include some of these uh, tactics and methods to communicate our faith, uh, every week will equip you down that road. We are going to engage some different tactics and methods that you could utilize to give a reason for the hope that you have. But, but you know what? One of the things that we find in our culture is a lot of people are searching for truth. And they wonder, is there, um, is there really a way to determine truth? And uh, recently I watched a, a video of, a, of, a, um, of an interview. A guy was interviewing college students at, uh, in, in Seattle at the University of Washington. And uh, he was asking about the sexual identity of, uh, and this, this young uh, interviewer, he was, a, he was a guy, he was about 5'7", and uh, he said to this, he was interviewing these college students, and he said, um, what if I said to you that I'm actually a woman? That that's who I feel like I am. And, and these kids, these, these kids are in college. I mean, they're studying big degrees. said, well, if that's true for you, okay. You know, and it made no sense. Because we live in this world that's becoming, it, it, we, it's difficult for many people in our world to identify truth. And, and you know, the, 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 the reality is that that we have a worldview that is based on scripture. And, and, and you know, when, when you have a worldview, and I want you to think about how do you see the world? Now, there's, there's a couple of tests to evaluate if your worldview makes sense. And the first question is this, is your worldview intellectually credible? D does your worldview make sense? Like, can you articulate the, the way you see the world, it's, it, it makes sense to me. It, it, it's, it's intellectually credible that, 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 that you're, the way you see the world makes sense. The second one, is it existentially satisfying? Does it work? Does your worldview work? And these are two important questions to evaluate on your worldview. Uh, is it intellectually credible? Does it work? And, and at the airport that day, this guy was telling me, my worldview is not intellectually credible. But I argued with him about that. He said, even if it's, if it's existentially satisfying, even if it works, then he said, 
Um, you know, it doesn't make sense. Now, the problem is that we live in a, in a world, and, and this is the world we live in, where people care more about not whether something is, is intellectually credible, but we live in a world that says, well, if it works for you, that's okay. You ever heard that? Oh, if your belief works for you, then, oh, that's good. I'm glad, that's good for you. And, and then many people live with this whatever works for you principle. And, and, the, the, and, and the problem with, with that is Jesus said this in John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is what Jesus said. So Jesus reminded us and helped us understand that truth is a very narrow thing. Truth is narrow. And truth is always narrow. And, and this is something that, that, that and we, I find a lot of people reject Christianity because they say, well, it's too narrow. You mean to tell me that Jesus could be the only way to heaven and that somebody who doesn't put their faith in Jesus won't go to heaven? Oh, that's just too narrow. I don't believe it. I don't buy it. And, but, but folks, that's what the Bible tells us. Amen. The Bible reveals, and we understand the Bible as the Word of God, and the Bible reveals that there is one way to heaven, and it's through Christ. And this is why, as a church, we've got to be so focused on communicating the gospel to a world that is living without Christ. Now, um, we're going to dive into this study in apologetics. Now, let me define it today, and I want you to write this down. It's not in your notes, so uh, there's not a blank for this, but I want you to write it down. No, it is. There is a blank. On your sheet. Yeah, that's right. I put that on there. Sorry. I forgot. Um, I put that on there. Apologetics is the discipline that seeks to provide a defense, a defense of the truthfulness of the Christian faith for the purpose of convincing unbelievers. Now, we have pens at the back if you don't have one. If you need a pen, you raise your hand and we'll get one to you. Brad can help you. So raise your hand up high. Brad's going to bring some pens by if you need one. But let me go through that definition again. Because I want you to understand apologetics. Apologetics is not saying, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I, I don't want to offend you. That's not what apologetics means. So again, that definition, think about it. It's the discipline. Now, I want you to think about that word. Now, tonight, in the next four weeks, our, not, our job is not to just get up and entertain you. And it's interesting, in, in, in this entertainment world of the church, we, we struggle with really thinking. And, and this, this, this mental sweat... Like Dr. Evans, this professor I had at OBU, he would always say when he'd come in and wrestle with something heavy, he'd go, boys, time for some mental sweat today. And I want you to know, for the next four weeks, we're going we're gonna to have to sweat mentally a little bit. And without apology, we're going to push you. And we're going to push one another to think about our faith, to think deeply about the reason for the hope that we have and, and this is why this word is intentional. It's a discipline. Now, discipline is going to be a big word for us in 2017. It's going to be the focus of our Lent season. We're going to work on some disciplines. Now, 
you got to understand this. We don't discipline ourselves to get God to love us more. God loves you. He loves us. But however, um, however, one of the ways we honor him and serve him and, and, and bring glory to him is by disciplining ourselves. And so we're going to discipline ourselves. It's the discipline that seeks to provide a defense. And over the next four weeks, we're going to help you learn how to defend the truthfulness of the Christian faith. And now, so, so we believe this is true, and we believe it's, it's intellectually credible, that, it's, that it works, that your faith in Christ works. But understand, for the purpose of convincing unbelievers. Folks, don't be mistaken that, that everybody we know are believers. I mean, we, we, we fall into that living around here in Tulsa. You know, that oh, everybody here knows Jesus. Everybody here goes to church. Everybody here understands the gospel. But, but that's not true. There are so many people that walk in the door of our church all the time that, that may think, oh, by coming to church, I'm going to heaven. Or, oh, well, Jesus is, is my Savior, but Muhammad is their Savior. And so, all right. No, that's not understanding the gospel. And it's important that we are a group of believers that are able, and we understand what the gospel is, and we're able to communicate it to unbelievers that we're called to. And this is important that we understand. Now, 1 Peter 3, 13-15, that's in your notes there, is kind of the foundation of this whole class that says, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? I mean, Peter's writing, and he's writing to the church that's being persecuted. And, and we don't, you know, sometimes in our American Christianity, we don't recognize the fact that, that our, the gospel is offensive, that, that when you walk with the Lord, there is opposition that comes to us. And this is just the reality of walking with Jesus. But Peter writes, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. You know, and this is some, this is what I want us to understand. I want us to recognize that we don't have to fear the threats of, of unbelievers, of a lost world that is, that seems um, intellectually uh, strong. Because you as a believer, and hear this, you don't have to check your brain at the door to be a believer in Christ. You do not have to uh, just go, yeah, we don't think. We just have faith. You know, you, there's a reason for, what we, for the hope that we have. And, and Peter writes, do not fear their threats. Do not fear those that are coming against us. Do not fear those that have big degrees. It says right there, verse 15, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Or I like the, I memorized this in the, in the old NIV. It says, set apart Christ as Lord. And that's who we are. We are a group of people that said, we're going to set Jesus apart as Lord of our lives. And in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. That for us, we need to be prepared. And it's, it's our goal over the next four weeks that you walk out of here prepared to give a defense, give a reason 
for the for our faith in Christ. And, and hey, get ready. Because as you prepare for this, folks, the Lord's going to open up a door. There's going to be somebody that you know. There's going to be someone in your office. There's going to be someone in your life, your neighbor, that the Lord is going to open a door. So, so let me tell you something. When you get ready, you better expect God to prepare you to open a door. Because anytime we come and say, all right, Lord, uh, I'm, I'm getting ready. Well, guess what? This is God's idea in your life. I mean, God's the one that's preparing you. God's the one that is at work in us and through us. And so I love this, that, that always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And, and this is what God is doing in the life of our church. Uh, Frank Turek is coming on January 29th. Do not miss that day. And, and here's what I want you to pray about is... Who can you bring that doesn't, that, that, someone that doesn't know Jesus on January 29th to hear Frank Turek end our four-week time with giving, helping us give a reason for the hope that you have? Begin praying about that. Begin praying about, about an unbeliever that's in your life. Someone that, that if they died today, they'd split hell wide open. Now, um, We've got to learn to do this. And I, I love how Peter ends this with gentleness and respect. Now, now as we think about this, as we think about uh, preparing, I, I, want to, I want us to just point out the importance, why this is important for us. First of all, like we just read, this is commanded by God. That, that giving a defense of your faith, God commands us to prepare and so what we are going to be doing over the next four weeks is commanded straight from the scriptures. That we are to learn to give a defense. And, and learning to, to give a reason, this is something that all of us should be able to do. And we're all called to. God commands us, hey, be ready. Get ready to give a defense. And, I, you know, uh, most of us, if you've been here very long, you know Rick Cuscio. I, I, I always try to use him. It's been a while since I've used him as an example. Um, uh, but but I, I had a church member one time that said to me, oh, man, i got a witness to my, to my co-worker. I'm going to call Rick. Rick's like the, the gunslinger evangelist in the church. I mean, I mean he's like, you know, every time he walks into that room, it's like, dude. Whatever that song is, what's that Western song? I was like, yeah. You know, and that's Rick when he walks in the room. He's, the, he's, got, he's, got, he's, got, he's ready. I mean, the guy's ready. And he would. I watched him witness to a fence post once. And I was like, wait. Hey, come over here. Okay, okay. And then he led to Christ, actually. <laughs> but, uh, but, but let me tell you something. I said to this, this church member, you knew it. You do it. Come on. You know, um, this is commanded by God for us to, to share the gospel. But, but as we do this, I, so not only, this is not only important because it's commanded by God, but this is important because this is going to give you confidence. This is going to give you the confidence to, to really speak up. Now, sure, none of us are going to be able to answer every question with that, with that, um, that lawyer. <coughs> I'll be honest with you, he was a better, I don't know if this is a word, arguer than I was. 
He was a good arguer. This wasn't his first rodeo. To to jump on a, a, a Christian, and he looked at me as, oh man, you're so young, young little punk. Um, but I'll tell you what, I held my own. I was pumped about it. And, and you know, he tried to intimidate me, and it just stinking didn't work. And I hate to lose, and I didn't. And uh, now he didn't fall on his knees and say, oh, Jesus, I want to follow Christ. But, you know, I, I had to work on that gentleness and respect. So we got to work on that. Um, but I want us to see learning this gives us confidence. You know, um, um, with the ambassadors. Now, we're going to be through around, what time are we through? 730. 730, yeah, almost done. Um, but, um, with the ambassadors, I'm sure we're, we're watching our players share the gospel on the baseball field. And I'm sitting next to a kid, to, to a, the dad of Grant Guest. Grant Guest played baseball for Jinx, really good baseball player. He's playing for a college in, in Arkansas, phenomenal baseball player for Jinx. And um, his dad and I are sitting next to each other, and he's watching Grant share the gospel on the baseball field with all his peers. And he looks at me and says, I can't believe this. I can't believe I'm watching my son have the confidence to talk about Jesus with his peers. And I go, yeah, it's awesome. I love it. And then he looks at me and he goes, aren't we all supposed to do that? And I was like, yeah. Learning, rustling through this is going to give us the confidence. And I, I pray for this. It's third thing. It's going to not only give you the confidence, it's going to grow, grow our commitment to Christ. Uh, over these next four weeks, your commitment to Christ is going to grow. And this is my prayer. That, that you're, going to, you're going to be able to articulate a reason for the hope that you have. Last thing, and this is something I'm grateful for. Learning to wrestle through apologetics, it's going to help you care more for the people around you. And, and this is what I pray takes place. That, that we develop, and, and God gives us a burden and a passion for the souls of men. And, and, and the truth is, being evangelistic and sharing the gospel is not just, and this is where a lot of people make the mistake, we're going to get into this in Acts, oh, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism. Folks, evangelism is not a gift. It's a responsibility that we all possess. And, and so we've got to understand that, that, that we're all called to share, share our faith. Now, I'm not saying, oh, crud, i got to go to my office tomorrow and stand on the chair in the break room and say, come to Jesus right now. No. But we got to get ready. And I, I want to ask over the next several weeks, for you begin to write today, I want to ask you to start praying, God, how will you use me? In fact, I want to do that right now. Lord Jesus, we want to stop right now. And on behalf of everybody in this room, and even those that are going to listen to this, that couldn't make it tonight in person, but they're going to sit down and they're going to, they're going to study and they're going to listen. I pray that you would move our hearts 
I pray that you would open our eyes to the people around us. Lord Jesus, we know this is commanded by you to, to learn how to communicate our faith. We pray for the confidence that you bring. Lord Jesus, we, we pray that this, this study grows our commitment. And Father, I pray that you would put a burden on our hearts for the souls of men. Lord Jesus, we need you. And we love you. That's in the name of prayer. Amen. I'm going to show you a little graph real quick. Um, when I was studying apologetics through Biola, uh, the, one of the first little modules I had to take um, had this graph in it, and I'll, I'll never forget it. And I want to share with you real quick before we jump into this. Uh, so there's two axes. Okay, so this axis here uh, is time. In this vertical axis is what we would call uh, number of non-believers or unchurched friends. So I'm just going to write um, UC right here, unchurched friends, UCF, all right? And there is basically this idea that the longer we go in time after becoming a Christian, the number of unchurched <coughs> friends that we have actually goes down. Has anyone ever experienced that? I know firsthand... Uh, in my, in my father's life, um, you know, I got saved at a young age, and so I can't say that I had a ton of unchurched friends before I got saved. Um, and, uh, you know, but I can see in my, in my father's life, um, when he gave his life to Christ, it was like everyone left. And it, was a, it was a weird, weird deal. So sometimes it's not up to us. Sometimes it's up to them. Sometimes they don't want to hang out anymore because you get kind of boring. You don't do the... You don't do the partying, you don't do the drugs, you don't do the things you used to do. And so sometimes they leave, uh, but sometimes I think what happens is that we end up getting inside this box or this little bubble that is really um, on our own. Does that make sense? Uh, we, we, we compartmentalize ourselves from the rest of the world. We listen to our own genre of music. We wear our own genre of clothes, right? Uh, not in this world. I don't know if some of you younger people know about it. Uh, we go to our own Christian festivals. We watch our own Christian movies. There's this total detachment that, that kind of takes place. Um, and that's not a good thing. I'm just going to say that. That's, that's not a good thing. There's, there's one good thing about it is that we should have a certain mindset that we are different, right? We are sanctified. We are set apart. But that doesn't mean that we no longer interact with the world. Uh, I love what R.C. Sproul Jr. said. He says that if you get from Jesus hanging out with sinners, is that you need to hang out with more sinners, then you've forgotten who you are in the analogy. Does that make sense? Because you're the sinner that Jesus was coming to hang out with. But still, it, it still applies that we've got to think about this. Um, that if this is going to make any sense to you, let me turn this up because I'm going to back up a little bit here. If this is going to make any sense to us or be of any application, we have to actually be surrounded with people who are not believers, right? Because this isn't going to do much for us if we're just hanging out with church friends. Um, and this is the uh, temptation that we've got to avoid because a lot of times when we get better and better at this stuff, actually what we happen to do is we'll hang out with people who like this type of stuff. I've got lots of friends who like philosophy and Christian apologetics and we like to talk about it, but sometimes that is a temptation is just to do that, talk about it with my other like-minded <coughs> friends and not actually get out into the world and see it applied in real life. So that is a temptation that we, that we have to um, avoid. So I want to show you a couple of things as we get started here. Who is that guy? 
C.S. Lewis, what is he known for? Yeah, he's, I'm taking something until I get it turned up. So he's known for a couple of things. Yes, books. What, what are some of his famous writings? What are some of his famous books? Scootape Letters. Okay, what else? Yeah, the Chronicles of Narnia, Mere uh, Christianity, Abolition of Man. There's, there's tons of them, aren't they? Um, what, what is he known as? He's a writer, isn't he? He was a professor at Cambridge and Oxford. He was, he was a, a very brilliant man. Uh, you know, not just Christians, but the secular world as well recognizes him as one of the most intelligent and one of the most brilliant intellectual giants of the 20th century. Okay? This, is, this is an incredible guy. Let me tell you what he really is. He's a Christian apologist. Every apologist in the world studies C.S. Lewis. And so a lot of times when we get in our mind what an apologist is, we get this, you know, this idea that it's this lawyer, it's this type A personality, this person who likes to argue, this person who likes to fight. Um, that's actually not true at all. In my opinion, one of the best apologists that has ever lived, and absolutely one of the most influential apologists that have ever lived, is C.S. Lewis right there. Every modern apologist that's alive today, we may be uh, a little more technical. You know, you got these specialized people like William Lane Craig, who's really into doing cosmology and, and theories of time to argue about the existence of God. Now, that wasn't C.S. Lewis's gig, okay? He was very much um, an apologist for the everyday person. If you read his stuff, then he messes you up. Right? But, but, but here's the thing. Was he always a Christian? No. He came to Christ at a late age, around 32, I believe. This guy was one of the most incredible people. Um, you know, he died long before I was born. He died in, I think, 1963. But he was one of those guys. Perfect. Thank you. Um, he was trained. He was classically trained. So this is, a, this is a guy that could read Latin and Greek, okay, from, a, from an early age. Uh, and he used his intellect to actually kind of uh, debate his buddies who did believe in God. Well, this is what happened that when he was at Cambridge, he got in, in Oxford, he got in this group of, of, of people, it was called the Inklings. Has anyone ever heard of the Inklings? The Inklings, what were they? They were a bunch of writers, all right? And they would go, okay, for Baptists, this might be a little awkward for a moment. They would go to a pub called the Eagle and the Child, and they would hang out and discuss ideas. You know who was a member of the Inklings? This guy and Tolkien, right? You know who helped lead C.S. Lewis to Christ? Tolkien, right? The author of Lord of the Rings. There was another guy named Owen Barfield who was, who was um, a, another brilliant person, and he was another guy that was super influential uh, to C.S. Lewis coming to Christ. But C.S. Lewis would go and hang out with these guys who were also very capable, and it ended up that his whole world changed, and then he, as an antagonist, became an apologist. How? To rub in shoulders with some people who were willing to do life with a guy who was a little bit arrogant, even though he was incredibly intelligent, they were willing to do life with him, and they kept working on him, they kept sharing ideas. And he has some examples, uh, Owen Barfield, uh, he, he says that he entered the Great War with Owen Barfield. Um, you can read about that later, but it's really hilarious that they really went to battle. Well, um, he was such a good friend of C.S. Lewis that he actually, uh, he, 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 he dedicates several of his books to either Owen Barfield or Barfield's daughter. Okay, Lucy Barfield was Owen Barfield's adopted daughter in the Chronicles of Narnia were dedicated to Lucy. And it's just a cool, sweet friendship that came out of 
hanging out of the pub talking about God, okay? So I want you to have that in your mind. When you think apologists, don't just think of someone who argues, someone who debates. Think of somebody who actually engages the culture, someone who engages people around them, loves and shares ideas, okay? Another guy I want you to know about is a guy named Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and you probably are never really going to read his stuff, but a brilliant person, a brilliant church father, gave us great ideas, okay, so he's a little bit of a different field. Uh, and then there's a guy that I absolutely recommend you get acquainted with. Does anyone know who that guy is? Steve Martin? No, not Steve Martin. <laughs> his name is William Lane Craig. He's considered the best apologist alive right now. Um, Incredible. If you can go check him out, William Lane Craig, I'll give you some resources at the end of this. Uh, my goodness, thank the Lord for guys like this, okay? Because they're going and doing battle um, all over campuses, all over the world, um, and it's incredible work that they're doing. So these are some of the people who do it, but why do we do it, okay? And, and, and I want us to unpack this idea of, of, of what it actually is that we do. The first thing that we need to take note of um, is that the role of the apologist to build an environment in which faith can grow. So here's the thing. When we do evangelism, is it up to us whether or not that person comes to Christ? Absolutely not. But what we want to do is we want to do everything we can to help them make that decision. Isn't that true? I love what Mal Alistair McGrath says. Uh, he says that um, at that point, what the apologist or the evangelist does is simply says, make the choice for Christ. Okay, that's all we can do. But once they make the choice for Christ, then we can start about start talking about the development and sanctification, all right, and, and understanding theology. But on that line, all we're doing is we say, make the choice for Christ. But here's the deal: this isn't an easy choice to make, and so we've got to we've got to have this concept in our mind. The role of the apologist is to build an environment um, in which faith can grow. I want that to be, if not the main premise the first or second premise that you take away. Because apologetics is not about arguing. It's not about trying to beat someone up with your intellect or your good reasons. It is about building an environment in which faith can grow, okay? And I'm gonna open that idea up a little bit further, but that should be one of the most important things you take away from tonight. Here it is, here's a, here's a quote from Alistair McGrath, who's um, another brilliant apologist. <laughs> Says, faith is about believing certain things are true, yet it is also trust. Apologetics does not create faith, but creates a climate of trust in which God can be seen as worthy of faith and commitment. Therefore, points of contact can be points of departure making the decision to believe easier, all right? How many of you have ever done evangelism? Hopefully everyone in this room has done evangelism, okay? But you ever talk to someone and they're like, well, you know, I just, this doesn't make sense to me. Or I, I've had these experiences in my past that have really hold me back. What is your job right then and there? That's right. It's exactly right. It's your job to help try to cultivate that environment in which faith can grow. We want with all our hearts to just say, believe, right? We want, you, we want you to see the reasonableness of this, the truthfulness of it. But we can't do anything other than help them get over those constraints that they're currently facing. And a lot of times what we have to do is we have to keep coming back, okay? Um, we'll get into that a little bit later. But one thing I don't want you to think of right off the bat is that there's some silver bullet, because there is no silver bullet, there is no perfect argument out there to be made that's gonna work every time. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to make these um, points of contact that make this departure to the decision to believe easier, okay? Because a decision to believe takes something that goes into it, doesn't it? 
What are two things that you need to know or have before you can believe something? Okay, now faith may be one of them, but first off, I need to know what it is I'm even talking about, right? So if I'm going to put my faith in Jesus Christ, I need to know who Jesus is, don't I? I need to have a little bit of an idea of what in the world we're talking about. But then also, I, I've got to at some point make that departure, okay? And that's, that's a point I want you to think about. That every non-believer or unbeliever, however you want to say it, at some point, if they're converted and they become a Christian, they actually make a departure. Do you get that? It's not just a matter of coming to faith. You make a departure. So when we have that in mind, we got to prepare for that departure. Okay, so it's not just coming to faith. It's that they're leaving behind everything else that they previously placed their faith in. So when you have a person who actually comes to Christ, I'm, I'm, I'm going to argue that most of the time, it is going to be a difficult process for them to leave behind everything that they've known up until this point to now depart and subscribe to your worldview. So I'm a little critical of the mentality that I can just go and, and lead someone to Christ right away in the first conversation. It may happen, the Lord works in mysterious ways, it may happen, okay? We see Paul uh, on the road to Damascus had plans, didn't he? And Jesus said, hey, what's going on, right? I've got plans for you. <laughs> so that's not, not to say that that can't happen, but I want to curb our expectations a little bit. When you're talking about these types of drastic worldview changes, they are departures. And when you depart, you're leaving behind everything that you previously placed your faith in. And it is not easy. And you've got to look at people as human beings, okay? Not just as projects, not just as an argument to be won. And when you start to see that, okay, what, uh, let, let, me, let, me, uh, let me give it a little bit of, a, of an image, okay? What if you were um, 18 years old, all right, and then your parents come to you and they say, hey, we never told you this before, but you're adopted. Would that be easy for you to accept right there in that moment? No way. Because everything that you previously believed, it may still be true, but it's different, isn't it? Think of that. When you come to a non-believer, an unbeliever, and they become adopted into the family of God, it is a drastic worldview, life, everything change. And so sometimes we have to be patient during that process, okay? And we have to be tender, we have to be merciful, and we have to understand that. So we're making a departure. So let me get to a, uh, uh, some practical um, application here. So there's what we would call a chasm, okay? And so in that, when we start to look at how people make these departures, there's going to be two different types of things, okay? So a lot of times um, when, we're, when we're trying to look at the, the things that people got to overcome, we need to be sensitive to the particular types of obstacles they may be facing, okay? So if we have right here intellectual, and I'm just going to write um, a circle right here, and I'm going to write an I in it to stand for intellectual, what might be some intellectual obstacles that people have to overcome in order to come to faith? Do you know people who have intellectual objections to faith? Yeah, all the, all the time. Um, so when we think about this, and I love our mission statement, so hopefully this isn't the last time I teach. Um, hopefully Chris still loves me after this. What is our mission statement? Tell me. That's right, to love people to Christ, right? And equip them on a journey with God and one another. Okay, absolutely believe that. 
let, let, me, let me throw this out there. I've met some very intelligent people in my life who don't need a hug. Does that make sense? Hey, Rob, you gotta sit down. <laughs> I can't sit down. Here's the thing, is that when you have an intellectual problem, the solution is not uh, an emotional solution. Does that make sense? And that's not to say that you still don't love that person because what I just prefaced it with, you've got to understand they're going to make a drastic worldview change. That means you've got to be sympathetic. It means you have to empathize. It means you have to have all sorts of sensitivities and love in that process. But you also have to be able to answer or at least help them answer some of the objections that they're currently facing. Does that make sense? Or if you can't personally, try to point them in a the direction that they can. Okay? Because they're not just needing a hug right there. There's some very type A people who are some very cerebral, and they're saying, I would come to Christ if this made sense. But it doesn't make sense. Right? Now, I love you. We can hang out. But I think you're crazy. All right? So different answers for different problems. Okay. So the other type of problem that you'll face is what we call social or emotional. All right? I remember I had a friend one time, and I was about 16, and um, racing motocross, and I used to draw crosses and all sorts of religious stuff all over my jerseys. That was my evangelism method, right? And I'd get people to talk to me about it. And it was, it was, sometimes it was cool, sometimes I just thought I was weird. Um, this is kind of not politically correct, but I had something written on my sleeve, and it basically said, screw religion, all right? I did that on purpose. I wanted people to come have a conversation with me and say, whoa, man, everyone knows you as a Christian. Why do you have that written there? Because I wanted to make the point that a relationship with Christ is not about religion, okay? Well, some guy came and talked to me about that. And we started talking, and he goes, well, man, I would, I would believe, I would go to church. But I tried it once. And we raised a bunch of money to build this youth building. And you know what? The pastor took that money, and he went and spent it on himself. So I'm done with God. Is, is, is that an intellectual problem? No. He's, he's, it's a social, emotional problem. He had an experience that scarred him, that is now preventing him so what did he just do? He blamed God for the actions of a man, didn't he? Okay, so there's, there's some things we'd have to work out. I thought, whoa, wait, what? You know, I'm, I wasn't very equipped back then, but we still talked about it. I said, man, that's, to me, that's not a good enough reason to jeopardize eternity, right? Men fail, we screw up. There's all sorts of things that go on. Okay, so, but the point is I'm trying to make is you've got to look at this, and you've got to, you've got to know who are you talking to. Because if we're going to cross that gap, we're going to build a bridge, we need to know that first there's a departure that's being made, and we're going to try to develop or create an environment in which faith can grow. Part of growing that environment, fostering that environment, is knowing what types of uh, things we've got to overcome, okay? And so then that may mean that we have to get into making a defense, but the first step is, is when we start looking at it from the perspective of bridge building, I really want you guys to think about this, that there is a chasm, okay? And here is where you are, so, so, so we'll say now. And then we're going to come over here, and then we're going to say faith. The apologist's job is to build a bridge from here to there. And you've got to be paying attention to the things that are going on in between there. Okay. Now, is it, is it, the, is it our ability to complete this and get them to walk over it? No, we can't. We would love to. But we're trying to say, look, man, here's, here's, here's a way to get across that. All right? Because I believe that our faith is, is a faith that can stand up to tough questions. I used to believe um, that we didn't actually have any answers. 
Um, I used to believe that uh, it, that Christians were kind of kind of dumb, and I was dumb too. I wasn't like I was thought I was smarter than anyone else. I put myself in the same. I thought we're all the same. Okay. Um, I never had anyone around me growing up uh, that challenged me. I never had anyone to say, "Hey, here's some good reasons for why we believe in God." Um, and so when I would I would I would read, I was always into. Um, science and philosophy, and I read these people, and I would think, yeah, they're probably right, you know. But I didn't want to admit it all the way. But I thought, yeah, they're a lot smarter than I am. They're probably right. right. Has anyone ever in a vulnerable moment? Has anyone ever felt like that at all? Yeah. Okay, so I'll tell you. I'll tell you what happened. Um, me personally, in about 2007, it was a true project came about, and we did it at the church. Um, got into it. That was my first time to be exposed to guys like um, William Lynn Craig and Robbie Zacharias and J.P. Moore, all these different people. I thought, wait, whoa, hang on, time out, R.C. Sproul. There's people who, who have some answers to some of this stuff. And then what you start to do is you start to say, okay, there really is good answers. There really is um, good reasons for believing what we believe. But that doesn't mean that this part right here will just be easy, right? But what I want us to see is that the first part is, 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 is our job as apologists is, is we've got to build this bridge. We've got to make that environment. The second side of it is, is that it has to be um, a defense. And when we read that scripture, um, 3.15, First Peter 3.15, what does he say? What's, what's the end of it there? He says that, that you should be able to give a reason, doesn't it? What is a reason? We'll talk a little bit more about this a little bit later, but first off, I just want you to question, what's a reason? It's not, it's not, it's not just making an assertion, saying, I believe, therefore you should too. That's, that's an assertion, isn't it? If I just throw a blanket statement out there and say, well, back it up. No, it's a, just, just, just accept it. That's not what he's telling you to do there, is he? And so what that Greek word um, is actually the word that we get apologetics from, um, you know, I'm not a Greek scholar, but apologia, uh, but it's transliterated apologetics, right? Apologetic, um, which actually means to give a defense. And so here we go. Let me give you C.S. Lewis's um, quote on this. He says, if all the world were Christian, it might not matter if all the world were uneducated. But as it is, a cultural life will exist outside of the church, whether it exists inside or not. To be ignorant and simple now, not to be able to meet the enemy on their own ground, would be to throw down our weapons and to betray our uneducated brethren who have, under God, no defense but us against the intellectual attacks of the heathen. He says, good philosophy must exist for no other reason because bad philosophy needs to be answered. It's one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. Um, and you think about this, and how did he go about doing this? He did it in a very whimsical way, didn't he? If you, you, you'll never find C.S. Lewis writing these um, just bashing, bashing types of books. He's, he's very poetic, very creative. Okay, anyone ever seen Chronicles of Narnia or read him? What does he do? He, he he uses such powerful imagery, doesn't he? You know, we're we're watching it um, with our with our kids, and they're bawling. Right when Aslan is sacrificed on the rock, we shave him off all of his hair, and they stab him, and he dies. That's powerful imagery, isn't it? What is, what a, well, that is exactly what apologetics is about. It's about saying, there is a reality in which I would love for you to see. 
let me be as creative, as whimsical, and as attractive as I can in, in getting you to, to see these truths, okay? So our, 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 the whole idea is to take these abstract principles and take them off the shelf, okay? 99% um, of the time, no one is looking for this uh, five levels deep cosmological or teleological argument. Most people want you to talk to them where they're at, okay? But here's the thing, there is an other, there's another side to this, that there is a need for a defense a defense of the faith. Um, are you are you familiar with secular humanism? Does anyone ever know, you know what secular humanism is? Interesting, interesting stuff. Um, it's actually classified as a religion now, and so lots of professors in the universities uh, will, will actually classify themselves as, as the religion that they subscribe to is secular humanism. Secular humanism is the basic idea that um, man is the measure of all things, all right? And there's, there's documents called the Humanist Manifestos, which have been signed by lots of famous scientists and, and uh, philosophers and uh, professors throughout the world. And if you look in the, the Humanist Manifestos, it is all about changing people's minds <laughs> to reject superstition and religious belief and to look inside of man for the answers of life, okay? And they absolutely will reject any outside authority and they'll reject any idea of miracles and they put all of the weight on the shoulders of men to figure it out, okay? So here's the deal. Um, uh, for the sake of time, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna do this, I'm not gonna do this fully, but I want you to Get the feeling of this. I wrote this up. I was going to role play for us a little bit, but I want you to just to listen to this. I'm, I'm going to read it to you, and then I want you to kind of um, tell me what you think. Good evening. I'm so grateful for this opportunity to express some of the reasons I personally don't believe that there are good intellectual reasons to believe that God exists. Um, I look forward to hearing what some of you might be able to offer in the way of clearing up some of the issues I have at present um, that are obstacles to me coming to faith. My name is Sam, and I work in academia as a professor of biomedical engineering and bioethics. I was well educated. I was educated at well-known universities, and I enjoy speaking to students about their faith outside of the classroom. I enjoy challenging freshmen who take my introductory course in bioethics to consider the dogma that they have been fed and the traditions that they hold to that are not based in science and reason. It brings me great joy when I see students giving up their superstitious beliefs and become critical thinkers after taking my class. I found it quite easy to help most freshmen see that I really do not have good reasons for believing in anything outside of the material world, and that materialism must inform our decisions in bioethics without um, posturing, posturing a supreme authority. As any scientist will tell you, there is nothing outside of the physical material world, and therefore we must recognize that we will look to science to help us understand the physical world we live in, and it is here we find meaning and purpose not in some idea of a supreme authority that could possibly say what is right and wrong for every culture and society. And that is one of the biggest issues I have with belief in God, the fact that what is right for someone might not be what is right for another person. No one has the right to say that anything is wrong, like really wrong, just because they don't agree with it and then put it in the name of God. And that's the beauty of cultural diversity. We all bring one perspective to the table while none of us has the ultimate and correct perspective. Think about this. Have you ever heard anything like that before? What would you say to someone like that? I guess it's okay to murder them. <laughs> and here's the deal. And some, people, and some people would say that. They would say, you know, in our Western culture, it's not okay because the social norms that we've developed would say that that's not okay. 
But in a warlord warrior culture, that that totally is okay. So maybe a time has passed and you go back to the Vikings or the Spartans. And, and is it okay in that culture? They would say absolutely. Because that culture defined their morality for them. And we as outsiders have no say in dictating what is objectively right or wrong. And you can have the idea of, okay, um, what, you know, what right does a Christian have in going to an Indian burial service and mocking the people who are doing their dances and their, and their, and their traditional um, rituals, right? Because we could say, oh, you know what? That's not what God likes. Let me tell you what God likes. God likes us to build a building where we can have a little bit more regular and a little bit more uniform and formalized service. And we need a way to collect money, so the building will help us do that too, right? And you could go on and you could say, well, you know what really happens? Is that some person takes a Bible and they just interpret it in, in however they want to, to further their own uh, moral or political propaganda, whatever their agenda is, right? And then you could say, attach onto that, well, everyone knows that the Bible has been translated and interpreted and retranslated and copied and errors and all sorts of things hundreds and hundreds of times over the thousands of years. And so we have no confidence in the, in the documents that we have right now are anything like what the original autographs were. You know what? We actually don't have any of the original autographs. Do you know that? We don't. But what would you say to someone like that? God created each and every one of us as individuals, and he loves us for who we are, and he uses our individuality to help grow his kingdom. So you may have a different perspective as I, but your perspective may be something that's going to reach someone else. So God is going to use those individualities create and expand his kingdom. So here's what I would say if I was, was going to play with you. I'd say, that's good for you. But objectively, that doesn't make sense for me. Why? Because I don't believe in God. <laughs> what? Yeah, you got an answer for me? I would say, I mean, I would say overwhelmingly the credibility of the Bible as stands up to and you know you could go into that. And then what do you do with evidence and that the Bible scientifically doesn't I'm gonna are we talking about Bible or what? I don't know. Yeah. But you, you hold up the credibility and the evidence and, and say, well what do you do with that? Yeah. How do you how do you answer So that? I would say if I'm playing devil's advocate still, I would say, um, what do you mean scientifically supported? Like how's the Bible scientifically supported? Well, I mean, that would be a really long conversation. <laughs> 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 Going really, um, just as far into antiquity as you can go with the Bible, say, and the things about nature, science, space, humans, that it reveals to us before we have that knowledge. Yeah. Way before, I mean, there's a lot of... Yeah, so the Bible also tells us that the, that the earth is square, right? So the four corners of the earth, so I'm kind of... <laughs> but here's, here, here's the thing, is that when I, what, what we hear... I'm, I'm, I'm trapping you a little bit. Hey, you go for it real quick, and then I'll finish my spiel. Take, take all that, condense it down, and just turn around and say, well, what if you were wrong? Yeah, that's good. So you can do, you can do the whole um, Pascal's wager, right? So why, why are you going to um, give up eternity when there's a possibility of you being wrong, right? So what, what do you lose by living a good, moral, upright life on this side for a very small amount of time and end up you being right in the end and gain eternity, right? Or you live as you would wish here and then you, you die and you're wrong 
and now you've just forfeited eternity. So that's Pascal's wager, in which we could say, what if you're wrong? Here's the thing. What I just did was, was so typical. I can't tell you how many times I've sat on planes. I was just, a couple weeks ago, I was sitting on a plane. I got a, you know, I, I fly a lot, so I get these first class up, upgrades. I don't pay for them, and it's awesome. And so I'm sitting in first class, I'm like, yeah, I belong here. <laughs> Who knows how many else are posters, or, you know, just like me. Uh, but I'm sitting next to this lady, and she's a physicist, and um, so we're having these, this, you know, wow conversation. And um, she was giving me all sorts of crazy stuff. And so for about four hours, as I'm flying up to Seattle, um, we're going back and forth, and she's just looking at me like, what the heck? Like, um, but, but the deal is, is what happens a lot of times is that people will do two things to you, okay? First thing is, is that they'll, what we call steamroll you. Do you th see how I threw out a ton of things at you all at once? And if you start to, add, if you start to hold me down to one, I'm just going to move. It's really easy for me to move. And you know what I just did? Just what I did to, um, yeah, I put the burden of proof back on her. So, but, but here's the thing, is that the burden of proof isn't actually on us. Here's the deal. You have, you, have, you, have to, you have to make sure that the burden of proof is placed appropriately, okay? But here's the thing. When you start looking at this, what we need to learn to do is really start to listen, all right? So we're going to get into tactics and methods a little bit later on. But before you get into any of that stuff, you have to develop a very keen ear. Okay, what does that mean? Um, what does it mean? You, you tell me. What does it mean to listen well? Ask a lot of good questions. Excellent, excellent. So when we're trying to understand, what do we do? We ask questions, don't we? What do we say? Repeat. Let me repeat this back to you. Here's the thing. One of the most valuable lessons I've learned in apologetics is how to listen. And, and it does two things. Okay, it diffuses the situation, but also when you really start to care for that person, you want to understand that person. And so what I was doing to this lady who was a physicist and had all these crazy ideas, I, I, I said, look, we're going to agree to disagree, um, but I want to know what you think. You know why? So when we start to look at this and we say, you know, there's going to be this departure, are you going to convince anybody in one conversation to overcome all of these obstacles? Probably not. So when I'm talking to this lady who's a physicist who's, who's invested her entire life in this worldview that us Christians are ignorant, do you think in a three-hour plane ride that I'm going to have her mind changed by the time we got to Seattle? No. But you know what my goal was? My goal was to mess her up a little bit. <laughs> to put some stones in her shoe. So we start talking about that. I'll give you a couple examples from the conversation. Um, she started to say, she started talking, we started talking about sexuality and uh, ginger identity and all these things, okay? And um, she says, well, those are just social stereotypes and, and we, social constructs that we put on people. Um, and there's a, there's a difference um, between gender and sexuality, okay? So if someone threw that to you, what, you know, where do you start even, right? It's kind of like, oh my gosh, we're, we're pretty deep already, aren't we? So here's the deal, is what I did was I started to say, well, what do you mean? Because I could have instantly gone into the Bible says that he made man and woman in his own image to start to go that way. But what I want to do first off before I do any of that is I want to understand her well. Right? I want to get what she's really trying to say. And here's what you find a lot of times. Is they don't actually know what they're talking about. And there's these, these, these things that they'll just throw out. And we start to, start to push it a little bit further. You start to see things fall down a little bit. But here's the thing. When we're talking about it as a defense, 
You have to know that we are under attack, that our worldview is under attack. So these professors, it's actually strategic. Um, so what did Harvard um, and Princeton and Yale uh, and Penn University start out as? Seminaries. Seminaries. What are they now? Some of the most liberal institutions in the world, aren't they? What happened? Well, we can always blame the devil. That's a good, that's a, it's like, you know, in Sunday school, it's either the right answer is Jesus or the devil, right? I mean, it's 50-50. It could go either way. But here's, but here's the deal. When we start looking at this, there's actually a strategy. Um, you know, man, you're, man, you're just a, a theorist over here, a conspiracy theorist. But there's actually a strategy here to take over the universities, right, by the secular humanists. You don't believe me, go do the research. Why would that be an important place to get control of? Exactly. Well, just I'll just I just little little thing I set up for you. I'm a bioethics professor. What does bioethics have to do with? Well, it, well, Mark. Mark, would you like to expound it? <laughs> so when we start talking about bioethics, that's stuff like cloning, okay, abortion, uh, euthanasia, uh, life extension, um, human uh, genetic engineering, all right? We start messing with some things that are kind of sketchy, aren't they? But if you look at the world from a purely materialistic perspective, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. If all we are is carbon and chemicals, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But here's the thing. When we start talking about this, um, when we start looking at it from the perspective of, I should have moved my clicker before I quit. Uh, if we look at it from the perspective of, I'm going to type in my name. My, I, can't, I can't do this all at the same time. I'm good, but I'm not that good. Um, if we look at it from the perspective of academia, okay, so who are the most influential people uh, in, in our society. I just want you to name, name some professions. Okay, sports, yeah. They really don't go to college, though, so, but. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Isn't it true, though? Okay. Um, someone said. Okay, yeah. So, scientists, what else? Actors. Okay, perfect. Super influential, aren't they? Okay, what else? Lawyers, musicians, musicians educators. educators, philosophers, doctors, right, engineers, the people making the decisions in the world generally. <laughs> Isn't that true? So how powerful is it if we can get it, capture these places and what do we have control over now? Who teaches, don't we? We have, we have power over the curriculum, don't we? Oh my gosh. And I'm not getting into culture wars. I'm not saying we need to take back the nation for Christ. We gotta, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. I, be, I believe that, but I believe it a little different than maybe sometimes it's, it's said. But there is absolutely a strategic movement by what they call themselves the brights, the liberal secular brights, <laughs> who actually think that Christians um, in Christianity, uh, creationism, all these different things are unscientific and they have no place in education. And Francis Crick, who is one of the co-discoverers of uh, the double helix and DNA, right? One of the things that he said, he says that Christianity may be acceptable for consenting adults to discuss in private, but it has no place in the education of a child. He literally said that. Christianity is perfectly acceptable 
among consenting adults in discussion in private, but it has no place in the education of a child. So when we, when we talk about this as a defense, we have to have that side of it. And that's where sometimes apologetics gets a bad name because we think, oh man, I'm not good at arguing. I'm not good at debating. I'm not good at battling. Like Chris was saying, he, he hung out with his lawyer, right? Who probably was trained in rhetoric and debate, right? More than likely. Um, most of those guys start out as philosophy majors before they go to law school. Uh, you know, it's, it's an idea that we start to think, oh my gosh, we're so intimidated by it. But you don't have to do it that way. There's some people that aren't gifted in that, and you let them do that, okay? Um, I, I, like, uh, I like watching a good conversation um, that doesn't go emotional. Have you ever been in a conversation that goes totally emotional? You ever been in any of those? Those are messy, aren't they? And are these conversations likely to go emotional? Yes, why? They're touching on the most, is, is we're poking nerves, aren't we? And so we have to do, and I'm, I'm preliminary, we have to learn how to defend the faith without getting severely emotional about it. Right? So I want to talk a couple more points about this. So when we look at this, science and humanity. So there is a big world out there, okay? But here is what is often thrown out. Humanity has finally come of age and no longer has any use for religion. Have you ever heard that before? Yes. Okay, and if I was going to play with you a little bit more, um, and maybe I will next week, we'll keep, we'll keep this up a little bit. Um, but a, a common ob objection is, is, you know what, back in the day when we were ignorant, and we thought that, you know, it rained because the gods were crying, we didn't understand the whole water cycle, uh, earthquakes, you know, we didn't understand all these things. And you look at all these different um, peoples, and they all looked at the world through that lens that there was some god or gods collectively who controlled all of these different things. Well, as science um, evolved, the enlightenment, we start to understand how the physical world works. Now we've got good explanations for these things that we once couldn't explain. Okay? So as we have come of age, what does that mean, to come of age? Finally come of age, what, what does that mean? What does it imply? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we used to see the world from an ignorant perspective, but now we don't, because we're so smart now. And, and as a part of that enlightening process, we now realize there is no longer any use for religion. And so we start to take this look as, uh, you know, Karl Marx, um, uh, if you've studied sociology, you'll know who he is, but he has a famous quote, he says that religion is the opiate for the masses. You know what he meant by that? He says, that's just a way for you weak people to deal with the suffering that you're going to face in life. It's the opiate for the masses. Right? My goodness gracious. And so they look at that from that perspective. But here's, here's something else we've got to talk about. Um, so we now know that science and rationality are not capable of answering the deepest questions of human existence. I'm going to give you a couple of them. So here's four things, and these are on your uh, fill-ins here um, under the contact points. Okay. Meaning, beauty, value, and justice. So when I was on that plane with that lady a couple weeks ago, um, this is where I'm going to go, and this is where I went with her. So I said, from a purely scientific, from a purely materialistic perspective, we're in trouble when we start talking about these things. Because science can answer a lot of questions, but it cannot answer. It has nothing to say about meaning. It has nothing to say about beauty. It has nothing to say about value. And it has nothing to say about justice. As C.S. Lewis put it, science is an observation tool. Does that make sense? 
Any of you guys have toolboxes, you know you've got tools for specific jobs, don't you? Even though it's a crescent wrench, it doesn't mean it actually works for everything, <laughs> right? Even the left-handed crescent wrenches. <laughs> um, so, but you've got this idea, is what we like to do is we like to say that science can explain everything. But actually it is not the right tool for even beginning the conversation about meaning, beauty, value, or justice. Let me explain. Whenever we start to say, why are we here? Okay, and this is a question that the famous mathematician uh, Leibniz put forth. He says, why is there something rather than nothing? Can science answer that question? No, it can only tell you about the stuff that's already here. They can't tell you why anything is here rather than nothing is here. Because you can't observe that, can you? Also, what is the purpose of my life? Can science answer that question? Is there any experiment in any lab in the world in which I can conduct and get the answer to that question? No. And so here's the problem. Everyone feels these. Doesn't everyone live as if their life has meaning and purpose? Whether you're a believer or not, don't you, believe, don't you live like that? So I'm talking to my physicist friends, so I said, so, so I said in your worldview, how do you deal with the issue of meaning and purpose? She says, well, there is no meaning, there is no purpose in life. I said, at least you're consistent. <laughs> but what does that do to you? And so I gave her this, this is a famous, uh, famous, well, it's my synthesis of some famous quotes, um, mostly it comes from William Lane Craig, but the idea that if there is no true meaning or purpose in life, then we slide along on our bellies as far as we can, and we die, and we die along with the universe that dies a cold death that nobody ever remembers, right? So the, you, you know uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and these other existentialist philosophers, they would say, if you, in, in, in Friedrich Nietzsche, you know, the death of God. If God dies, so does meaning and value. Doesn't it? And then you can have secondary meaning, you can have this white lie meaning to your life, but at the end of the day, it actually doesn't matter. You ever thought about, you know, gruesome sometimes, um, you know, uh, chicken farmers killing chickens? Is there a humane way to do it, right? Um, Rex, I think you've told me about people swinging around chickens until their heads come off. Those poor chickens. Did they remember it? I don't think so. That's a deep philosophical question, but I don't think so. So if all we are is matter, and the matter dies, does it matter in the way in which the matter died? No. Does it matter how the matter lived before it died? No. Because trillion years from now, when the universe has expanded so far, and everything is so cold, there's nothing, and there is no God, there is no meaning, it does, none of it matters at all. So when we look at this, science has nothing to say about meaning or beauty. When we talk about beauty, what do, what do, what do we talk about there? Now there's a subjective element to beauty, right? There's the old saying, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But it is a pretty universal thing that we all can look at something beautiful and, and appreciate it, can't we? There's certain things that we can look at and say, wow. What does science have to say about that? Nothing, right? And then value and justice. Okay, so now you've got these ideas of, of um, well, utilitarianism, right? Everyone kind of knows roughly what utilitarianism means. Utilitarianism is basically the idea that what is right is what benefits the majority, right? Um, does, does that work? Wholesale, does that work? No, because we can think of a lot of counterexamples, can't we? Um, if you take, uh, you can, I'll stick with the chicken analogy. Uh, you can take 99 chicken farmers and one chicken. 
to that chicken. Does it matter? <laughs> it wants to get away, doesn't it? But you could take it even another another step further, and you could say um, that that there's certain instances uh, where we can look at society, we can look at say Nazi Germany. Okay, might makes right, does it? No. So even you can say if there's a thousand of these people and only one of them, and the thousand likes to exterminate them, we'd say it still matters for that one, doesn't it? Does science have anything to say about what we should do in that? It has nothing to do with it, does it? I had a friend once say, he goes, Rob, he goes, if you're going to run a business, are you going to run it off of science or are you going to run it off of religion? I said, both. <laughs> science tells me how much money I owe you. <laughs> religion tells me whether or not I should pay you. <laughs> right? Because, strictly speaking, scientifically, I don't have to do anything morally. But there's where integrity and all these other things start to get into place, right? So we, we have to have both. So I want you to think about this. Um, you know, I was messing with you, and I'll continue to mess with you a little bit. Don't, you'll get better at falling from my traps. But don't, don't do anything until you've touched on these first. Because if you ask me these, we're in trouble. And that's not just because I want you to, to prove that I'm right with these assertions. Actually, these are great places to start, okay? In, in our world right now, we, we have to struggle through these. I want to quickly go through these um, practical insights, and, and we'll be finishing up here. We're, we're on time. We're doing good. Some really good stuff that I think we all need to look at. So traditional apologetics works best for those who want Christianity to be true. It comes from Tim Keller, um, uh, a talk I heard him give. And at first, I'm like, I don't like you, Tim, because <laughs> I love traditional apologetics. I love giving reasons for why God exists. I love um, giving reasons for why the Bible is reliable in the, in the documents we've got, that there's over, uh, you know, the thousands of years um, and, you know, tons and tons, over 5,000 different manuscripts, and there's only a 2% deviation from the earliest ones we have to the ones we have now. I'd love to talk about those types of things. But what, what does he say? He says, traditional apologetics, stuff like that. Do we have evidence for the resurrection of Christ? Those types of things. He says, those only work when people want Christianity to be true. Think about that. So here comes the point. We have to back up just a little bit. Right? And that's why we're doing an introduction before we get into these arguments. Um, in my mind, um, I, I think we need to do some preface work here before you get into cosmological and teleological and the problem of evil and all those things. We've got to deal with those, and those are good stuff. Those are good things. But we got to back up here because they won't work until we deal with something a little bit softer. Here's the deal. We need to not only uh, we need to not only help skeptics see that there are good reasons for believing in God, but we need to help them see that there are good reasons for why they should want Christianity to be true. Do you get that? I don't just want you to be convinced that God exists. I want you to see why it's important for Christianity to be true. And here's the point, and this is leveraging off of um, Tim Keller. He's got a book called Making Sense of God, and he hits these six things. He says, these are the six things that you've really got to talk about before we can really make that connection to traditional apologetics. He says, meaning, satisfaction, freedom, identity, justice, and hope. So, let's take a look at it from two perspectives. Let's look at each one of these quickly from a worldly view, and from a secular view, and then from a Christian view. 
All right, so let's start with meaning. We just dealt with that just a little bit with our points of contact. Um, so from a secular perspective, where do we derive meaning from? So yeah, so our jobs, yep, yourself, your performance, right? Um, how much how much money can you get? <laughs> how much influence can you muster? All these things. What if it starts to look like circumstantial things, doesn't it? Here's 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 my meaning, um, and we struggle with really trying to define meaning from a purely secular perspective, as I just said, because without a God, there isn't any true meaning to life, is there? It's, you always have these secondary types of white lies meanings that we can generate, but there isn't actually an objective meaning to life. But here's the thing. This is what we would say is um, something every common person can feel. Why do we want Christianity to be true from, from, from the perspective of meaning? What does Christianity have to say about meaning? <coughs> we're valuable. Yeah, we're valuable right away, aren't we? We were created to do something, weren't we? You know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that man exists, man's chief end is to enjoy God and glorify Him forever, right? I love that. That I am created to do two things, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And everything else around, I'm really trying to figure out how I can leverage that to do both of those things well. Now I've got meaning that transcends here and now too, don't I? Satisfaction. How does the world answer the, the, the problem of satisfaction? Once again, it's a circumstantial thing, isn't it? If I have enough friends, or if my friends like me, or if I have enough money, or if I have this level of lifestyle, right, then I'll be satisfied. And what do we actually find out? That the people with the most money aren't actually the people who are happiest, right? Um, maybe one of you literary critics can give me the right answer to this, but uh, I can't remember his name, but he wrote The Eagle Who Landed. Um, I can't remember his name. But they asked him, I said, what would you, what would you tell your 20-year-old self now that you have all this mad success? He says, um, I would say that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. Think about that. And Chris, is, Chris can relate to that, right? <laughs> Uh, he, he texted me right after he finished his doctoral dissertation and all of that, and he's like, I kind of thought it'd be more exciting unless some, you know, confetti would come down or something. <laughs> but in, in my life, every time I've accomplished something, it's cool for about that long, isn't it? And I look at all my trophies from motocross and stuff, and I'm like, that was 15 years ago. What have I done lately? Right? Right? I mean, it's like, it really starts to degrade over time. And it's, it comes back to that idea, what have you done for me lately, right? So when we start looking at satisfaction from the world view, um, we're in trouble with it. Why do we want Christianity to be true? Because Christianity says, despite or in spite of your circumstances, you can have joy, right? You can have meaning, you can have satisfaction. You can have real joy, independent of what's going on around you, right? Paul tells us that clearly. And there's a strength in that, isn't there? Because now nothing can take that away from you. And I love Jonathan Edwards in his first sermon he preached. It's called, preached, uh, it's called Christian Happiness. And he says that there's three main reasons Christians should be happy. He says that the best things that we have, the good things, can never be taken from us. Okay? And God works all things for good. And the best is yet to come. 
from a Christian perspective, we want that to be true, don't we? That God is working all things for good. The good things that we currently have can never be taken away. The true good things, eternal security, right? Fellowship with the Father. You can't take that away from me. And three, the best is yet to come. Oh my gosh, I want that to be true, don't you? Okay, next, identity, freedom, all of these different things. You start to look at them. How do you derive your self-worth, who you are? Um, we talk about freedom. Uh, the world would say freedom is when you just, you're not uh, restricted in any way. You're able to do whatever you want. But we know that actually that's not a good thing. Under structure and order, we actually thrive, okay? And then justice, we talked a little bit about that. And then hope. From a purely secular perspective, where can you get hope? Yeah, temporary things, right? Lottery. The lottery, yeah. And look at those people, they're winning. <laughs> you look at these NBA and NFL players who make these millions and millions of dollars, what do they what do, what do they got in about five years? Nothing. Yeah. But, yeah, all sorts of people come in their lives and help them make investments, don't they? <laughs> Those investments don't usually work out. So there's a lot more that can be said about this. Um, but I want to recommend a few books before we close. These are the types of books that I have been touching on today. Um, Chris and I have you know, been talking about different things that can influence this. These are the four books. There's a lot more books, and we'll keep recommending more. But these are the four books that you want to get the ideas and concepts that we've been wrestling with today. Mere Christianity. Absolutely incredible. Intellectuals Don't Be God by Alison McGrath is a totally different book than you would ever read on <coughs> Incredible stuff. Um, and the Reason for God, Tim Keller, and Making Sense of God by Tim Keller. I'm going to let Chris close it down. You know, I, I want you to write these titles down, these authors down. Uh, you know, uh, as we close tonight, my, my daughter just went to college. My oldest daughter went to college, and my son is is just a couple of years away from there. The other day we were, he was telling me about one of his classes and just some of the things that he's learning from a secular perspective, like Rob was telling me about. And these are some thinkers. These are some them, some secular thinkers that are that are that have studied a lot, that have learned to make good arguments. And I said to Eric, I said, you know what? You have a really good high school pastor's kid um, defense of your faith. And I said, you need to work harder. You need to study a little more. Because he's rubbing shoulders with some of these really um, uh, college level and beyond secular thought. And he's battling it with a high school faith. It's kind of like this. Let me give you this analogy. Um, when I was in college, Brad and I played college tennis. College tennis is tougher than high school tennis. You're just better in college. Um, my, my senior year of college, I played a kid who had won the 5, the 5A was the biggest at that time, the 5A number one single state championship and we played in a tournament. He was better than me. He was a better tennis player than I was. But I beat him. And after the match, he was like, dang it. I think I'm better than that guy. He just didn't know it yet. But 
we've got to learn to wrestle with and benefit from those Christian thinkers that are at the college level. You know what I mean? I don't know if this analogy makes sense. But we too, we too often just rely on our Sunday school wrestling. Oh, but, but when it comes to a world that doesn't know Jesus, we've got to work harder than that. And I want to push you and challenge you to read some of these things. Then you're going to have to go, i got to think about that for a little bit. That, that's not, this isn't the cartoon section of Christianity. This is something that's going to require you to sit down. You're going to have to put in some time, some effort, some mental sweat. But I want to challenge you to don't just rely on, well, my pastor preached a sermon on this. Let me give you his outline. Though, you know what? We're working hard to not just give you the, oh, Jesus, and don't mess with, don't follow Satan. You know, follow Jesus. Okay, go get him. You know? Let's learn the reason. Let's learn to give a defense. Let's learn to wrestle. Let's learn to, to uh, not just get emotional and yell louder than somebody else. But to really honestly say, let me explain to you the reason for my faith. Because I'll tell you, God will use that in a world that really doesn't have the answer that we do. Lord Jesus, lead us. Lord Jesus, I thank you for, for this night and, and the challenge of it and the difficulty of it and the inspiration of it. So Father, lead us and prepare us. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us, and thank you for letting us meet together. In Jesus' name, amen. We're having a meeting upstairs in our Calvary, if you're interested. Thank you so much for being here tonight, and we'll see you next week.